spoken lately. I haven't thought about flying for a long time. I have a dream that at moment when I was alone above the clouds for a long time. I have dreamed waking up in a room surrounded in blue and green grass for more years than I could dream of memory. I haven't walked back into the past or scratched on the doors of my origins, where it all came from, since I held up that cape for the last time. Return to Kent Town 10th year anniversary edition is a revised version of Ambien's first poetry book. The book can be purchased from Amazon and it contains numerous additional material. Spoken Label Hi, it's Ambien from Spoken Label. Thank you today for streaming or downloading another episode of Spoken Label. Spoken Label was originally set up on beginning of the 2016 and as of speaking has currently nearly 300 sessions. The full archive is available on Spoken Label full stop bandcamp.com although it is available for free for stream and download if you wish I am always grateful for any sort of kind of donation to enable me to keep the running costs this podcast going. And enjoy. Take care. Bye-bye. Spoken Label. Hi, guys. Andy N. Spoken Label. Back in the house on a Monday evening. Yes, we're a bit earlier this week because England's about to go into a heat wave later in the week. And I don't want to be sat in melting when I'm doing podcasting. So we're doing it on a cool night tonight. Now, we're over to abroad, of course, today. We've got a lovely gentleman with me today called Adam Fleming, who I've been reading his book earlier on today. So I'm going to let Adam introduce himself and we'll start from there. Take it away, mate. And also tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, and what sure. started your writing. Yeah, Andy, thanks so much for having me on, on your podcast. My name is Adam G. Fleming. It's easier if you look me up, you look for the middle initial. Um, I live in Goshen, Indiana, which... Uh, for, for people around the world, you have maybe you don't know where Indiana is, except that you've heard of the Indianapolis 500. That's our big that's our big thing. We love our car racing. And also, uh, I, I'm actually closer to the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. So that's a that's a pretty uh, famous university worldwide. Um, I've been married since 1998 to my lovely wife, Megan, and we have four children. The oldest is uh, um, headed into his second year at university. He's study, studying film production. Um, the second uh, son is, you're going to love this, Andy. He's a, he's a Man City fan. Yay! Uh, and, and a footballer, <laughs> as you say, Brilliant. in England. And uh, he is, um, but you might not like this. I'm a Liverpool guy. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) I'm a fan of Jurgen Klopp, and I I love Mo Salah, so it's it's hard not to root for. No, he's a he's a he is a great manager, so definitely that. Then, how did you and your son get into football then, or soccer, as you call it in your country? Well, yeah, that's a great question. Um, We live in a in a city with a lot of immigrants from Latin America. Hmm. Um, particularly Mexico, but some of the other Latin American countries as well. I think there was a day when he was in third grade, about 10 years old, and he went, they were having like a social time at the school, at the elementary school, and he went across the street of half an hour early to play in the schoolyard. And I came over later and realized he was out there 
Um, you know, obviously we're Caucasian. He was out there with uh, about 30 Mexican kids playing football. And I said, this, he's not going to be a baseball player. <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> so it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, we're a melting pot. It's an immigrant community uh, here for, because of the factories um, that we have here. And so my kids grew up playing football and what you call football, what we call soccer. And uh, they've kind of stuck with that. So. Uh, yeah, so I have uh, two other kids. I have a younger younger son also who also plays football and a daughter who's a writer. And she, I have to tell you about my 11-year-old daughter. She was up on New Year's Eve finishing her first draft of her first novel oh, at age great. 11. She wanted to get the draft done before midnight. She came downstairs about 11.25 p.m. and said, I got my first draft of my first novel done as an 11 year old kid on New Year's Eve. So Ooh. I was so proud because, you know, you got to set goals if you want to write. If you want to write books, you have to have a goal setting kind of a goal orientation or else you end up just writing a few chapters and then letting it drift and writing something else and never finishing anything. So it was cool to see her uh, having tremendous. that kind of mentality. That's tremendous that is. Oh, I see. You've got to keep encouraging her straight away with that, Adam. Straight away. That's impressive, that one. When did, obviously, yeah. obviously, did you start writing yourself at a similar age or did it come to you later in life? Uh, I've dabbled with a lot of different artistic media from uh, the time I was in high school. I was doing stuff with ceramics. And then in my younger, in my 20s, um, I, met a, I met a guy who... Um, was an older Mason and he showed me how to carve alabaster and soapstone and things like that. And so I spent a few years mostly tinkering in my shed with um, like softer stone carving type of stuff, smaller, smaller things, just, mm. uh, you know, one or two high and um, like decorative sculpture pieces. And I played some music, um, but it was somewhere around, 2008 maybe that I decided I wanted to write a play I had done some some uh, community theater acting as well oh <laughs> so, so I've done a little bit of everything and then I said I want to write a play and then I ended up turning that into my first novel which is called White Buffalo Gold back in 2012 so I dabbled with a bunch of different things but I read somewhere um, about Michelangelo started carving stone when he was five years old and they just had him carving paving stones basically learning to cut marble uh so that it wouldn't break the way you don't want it to break you know because um, it'll have little fissures or cracks in it and i thought well what have i really been doing since i was five and the answer was reading um so i thought if if there's going to be one medium that i'll be really good at it would be it would be writing uh so i've been honing that craft for about a decade now Brilliant. Now, the book, obviously, if people wonder, you, I need to kindly send over to me the first novel in your Satchel Pong. I've got I've pronounced that right. Satchel Pong Chronicles. Yeah, Satchel Pong Chronicles. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And obviously, the book I've read is um, the one um, Satchel Pong and the Great Migration. Now, I've got to ask you first of all, where did the inspiration for the name of this character come from? That's unusual to put it nicely. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't really remember because I wrote the first uh, draft of Satchel Pong probably six years ago, but I remember, um, 
driving with my wife and one of our friends who's a songwriter back from another friend's wedding in another state. So we had a good couple hour drive after a reception. It was pretty late. You know how it is when you do a road trip and it's one o'clock in the morning and you're just making things up like improvisationally making up songs and so and and we just thought it was funny that if you would sing his name in a song you would instead of saying pong you would like hit a japanese gong or something so you would be like if his name was in a song you would say satchel and then the drummer would hit the gong you know yeah now straight away now, as, as i told you off mic before now obviously the first book i've read i've really enjoyed this first book because I, I thought you had it you had it where like sometimes you read fantasy books people are interested and obviously this is more like in the the dystopian steampunk genre. I can see what you said here. Yeah. I do I do agree with you in that. But I can see the fantasy element in it as well. Now, I really like the world-building aspect what he did in this. It was really, really vivid on the first book. Now, tell us about the... Obviously, we used, I know you've wrote five books in this series, and you're telling me, obviously, that that series is now finished. But um, was it always going to be five books or originally? Uh, originally it was, a, the idea was to have a book that my characters in another book I'm still writing called the Zeppelin Zeke, um, project. I don't have a final title even for it, but the Zeppelin Zeke character is in a rock band and they sing about, uh, a book about Satchel Pong. Um, and I wanted to actually make the, the world building in that story rich enough to actually have that book written. So the characters, when they write rock songs about Satchel Pong, uh, actually have some written material. So I originally wrote it as backstory for another book and then came back to it a year later. And, and I said to myself, this book's about 85% done. And I, I think it's pretty good. Why don't I just finish this first book? And then I had an idea for a second one and, um, and it was, it was kind of around the, the end of the fourth one that I thought, okay, it's time to wrap this up. And then, oh, oh my goodness, I, you know, how am I going to finish book five? So I personally, I've had other people say they thought book two was the best out, out of the five. Um, I'm kind of partial to book four, but I think that f- book five does an adequate job of wrapping up the series and, and, and making you feel like you've had a satisfying, you know, experience of the entire story arc. So Satchel Pong has to start by trying to figure out how he's going to get off his island nation and get his people to safety. But because it's science fiction as well um, and and dystopian, there's a question of whether or not eventually in book two or three, somewhere in there, they begin asking the question, do we actually need to leave our planet? And, And how do you get off world, you know, in a Zeppelin? Yeah, no, straight. No, straight up. That's that's brilliant. (laughs) No, that's brilliant. I really enjoyed it. I liked um, I liked this. There was a lot of humor in the book, or if it's the British side of me that saw the humor. And I always like to ask writers when they're doing novels like this, how much of yourself was in the main character? Uh, Probably a lot more than I realized. Um, I think that's what what Pong starts out as kind of a. Um, well, I'm not a government uh, um, bureaucratic government agent, agent or uh, employee myself, um, but he's he's a meteorologist for the listeners. He's a meteorologist, but in his world, that's a government position, uh, an elected position. Um, but he's sort of an incumbent who's never going to get replaced. 
he's kind of secu- got a job security and he's supposed to report on the weather, but he hasn't for about a decade. And so people start to complain to him on the street that you're not doing your job because you haven't given us a weather report. Um, but I, I think he really, as far as me, you know, I think when I was younger, I didn't really, hadn't really done a lot of leadership or, or didn't know how to lead. I think he's, I think he's timid, you know, and he doesn't know how to lead his people and he's not sure what to do. And I think there's an aspect of all of that in us when we're younger is like, I guess you learn how to lead by starting to lead. So I think he, he really becomes a leader over the series, over the course of the series, as he is forced into a position of leadership where people expect him to take some initiative and, and give some direction. Um, and so I don't know. Maybe there's a lot more of me in there. That was a good question. Andy. I'm not <laughs> <quite sure. laughs> I, I always like it when I do this little podcast to try and catch out the author with some insightful questions straight away with it. But you do. I mean, well done. <laughs> but my wife, actually, I said 40, and she's a novelist herself. She not does much now, but she writes a lot of horror books and done quite a number of zombie books. And I always like yeah. asking her, with all the books she's done, how much of the lead characters in, of hers in it? And she often says to me, Tries to say there's nothing, but I know it is. I know the truth, right? (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've got to ask you, obviously, we talked off microphone, Mike, as well. I really like the covers on all five of these novels. You were telling me before, like, your sister's done the covers for you, didn't she? My sister did all the covers, and I don't know, you published this only on, you put it on YouTube, right? People can see this? Yeah, yeah, I'd be on YouTube straight away. Yeah, yeah. So for, for people who are not just listening, Here's the first cover, Satchel Pong and the Great Migration, um, which, yeah, my sister, that was the first cover my sister ever did for me. I was also going to ask you, had she actually done many before that? Obviously not. They're all brilliant. No, no, she hadn't. um, Satchel Pong and the Search for Emil Ennis, um, you know, definitely steampunk looking book there. And then um, at least in this stack, I've got one more I can show you. Antoinette Joe and the Sky Dwellers. That's what I was going to go to next about Antoinette. Antoinette. So obviously, tell us about her journey as a character and where does she come from? Well, she comes from Satchel Pong's island chain as well, um, but from a minority group. And uh, she is the um, apprentice to the master wireless operator. So you meet her pretty early on in the first book as Satchel Pong's trying to figure out how to start his migration. He has to go ta- um, use a radio to contact the dirigibles and try to get some some guidance from outside his, his uh, local kind of insular community. And Antoinette uh, Joe becomes one of his uh, primary um, supporters, not really a sidekick, I wouldn't say, but because uh, uh, she's very much her own, <laughs> her own um, person, you know, um, and is not just, not just there to follow him around, but very opinionated and really wants to make sure that um, her minority group doesn't get left behind. Yeah, She's that's why passionate. I got that on the book. Because was, it, it was yeah. almost like it was a character knew her own mind. And I thought, and I, I was going to, I was half tempted to ask you, is that based, is that based partly on your wife? But <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> uh, yeah, it probably is my, you know, we got married when my wife was really young. She had only been 21 for a couple of weeks. And um, she did, uh, she did kind of, 
kind of come to a point where she just kind of, I, I'm very uh, assertive with my agenda, things mm. that I want to get done. And we talked about goals a little bit earlier. Like I have goals in mind all the time, something that I'm doing. And it's her personality is a little bit easier to just kind of follow the leader. But I would say maybe, maybe around the time that I started writing this, <laughs> we'd been married for uh, 15 years or so. And her personal, her ideas and her things that she wanted to accomplish in life were starting to come out at that point. And now she's, you know, studying for a master's degree and um, doing her own thing a little bit more than she did our first 10 years when we were having babies. And, you know, she was just kind of uh, an at-home mom and kind of doing the stuff that you have to do when you have babies. But, but now that our kids are older, she's definitely she's her own woman that's you've got to go a bit more. you got me again andy <laughs> well that's two now i've got time with the third question to catch you out with yet <laughs> now obviously uh people wondering on the research obviously will discover you not just wrote this series now i want to touch on all the other books you've done as well and these include the books i've not read as well but i know you've done at least a couple of books and non-fiction books so yeah. we'll go on to that next then, okay, before we go on to your sure. Stetson and Jeff thing. Now, tell us about these two books then, because obviously I know you did a book called How to Make a Positive Cultural Impact. Right. What, made you that, to, what made you want to go from fiction into writing that book? Well, actually, I wrote The Art of Motivational Listening first. Oh, look at that. that. <laughs> I, got this one. I got this one published by a traditional publisher. Um, which was a good experience, um, even though mo- all the rest of my stuff has been has been independent. Um, and then, yeah, I'm just very interested in in culture, and so I think you see that in in my fiction books too. That my characters are constantly traveling, crossing cultural boundaries, um, discovering like what what's going on culturally. Um, but those those nonfiction books came more out of my career as a leadership and executive coach. Um, which I've been doing since 2007. So uh, I wanted to, this one here, I wanted to write something. There's a lot of how to coach books that are kind of step-by-step, one, two, three, four, five. Um, I wanted to write a series of um, almost more like mini articles. Actually, I originally posted them on my blog. Um, Each one with more of a metaphorical way of thinking about how to listen better. And then yeah. the book, how to, how to Make a Positive Cultural Impact, came from some thinking about how we leverage our time and energy um, into, um, if, if we manage them well, our, both our time and energy, it can leave us time and energy for exploring things that help us increase our empathy, which my theory is reading fiction is one of the things that help us increase our empathy and increase our creativity. And the other thing that I believe um, helps us build both empathy and creativity is travel. So it really points people towards the idea that if you read fiction and you travel, you're likely to raise, raise your levels of empathy and creativity. And if you can do that, then you can deploy that energy back into building a more positive culture, um, whether it's in the workplace or you know in whatever or even in your home, right? And then that that comes back around to now I need to manage my energy and my time better again. So it becomes like a cycle. So that yeah. was the idea that I had and and wanted to play that out in the book. Interesting, great idea. I'm always a believer with creativity. 
never stand still on anything you do. So and this is why it's great now, because we're coming on to your Western series next, Stetson Jeff. Now, oh. now what I like, this, I, I remember spotted this one earlier this afternoon when I was researching you, and I thought to myself, I thought, I thought wow, you've done, you're a non-fiction writer, you're a poet, but we're to come on to next, and obviously you these steampunk books. Where did the idea for Stetson Jeff come from then? Well, I wrote Stetson and Jeff together with a brilliant writer named Justin Fike, who uh, has a master's of uh, creative writing from Oxford and is a good friend of mine. And we were together at a conference in Thailand and we saw a group of Texans there and we, we, you know, jet lag. When you go to Thailand from the United States, you're talking like a 14 hour difference. So you're waking up when you should be going to bed. So we're up at seven o'clock in the morning with a cup of coffee, looking out over the bay as the sun's coming up. And we're talking about what's it like the first time somebody from Texas, you know, this Texas is famous around the world for the cowboys and the oil and the, you know, like certain, certain mentality about life. And so we, we were just laughing with each other as we sort of sketched out in improvisationally in conversation with each other, the idea for a character who comes from Texas and travels the world in, in, in pursuit of uh, justice and a great piece of steak, which, you know, of course, for someone from Texas, which is cattle country, you can't get a good piece of steak almost anywhere, especially if you go to <laughs> Thailand. Like if you go to Thailand, you're getting shrimp and noodles, you know, and, you know, pad thai and fish and, but finding a good piece of steak is, <laughs> is impossible. So, you know, um, so at the end of this conversation, we just said, we, we got to write this character into a book. And so with that, we came out with uh, beat down in Bangkok and I uh, would describe the character as sort of a cross between any Chuck Norris character and Forrest Gump with a little bit of in- inspector Clouseau thrown in. <laughs> oh, that's a heck so, of a comp. That's a heck of a comp. <laughs> He is, he is a great, great character. And, and out of all the stuff that I've, I really like my Satchel Pong stuff. And if you like steampunk, you want to read that. But if there's one character I could see as a Netflix icon, it would be Stetson Jeff. Now, obviously, there's been a number of books in this series at the moment. I, think I, I, I know you've got plans, unless your plans have changed. I know you did have plans to do up to nine of the books, didn't you, originally? I think there's we been... Did. I think there's three come out at the moment and another three on the way at the moment, I can see. I think there's another three on the way and then I think I'm going to stop working on Stetson Jeff. And uh, so I think I'm going to close the series actually at six. And hmm. Justin's kind of given me the permission to wrap this up. And then maybe we'll come back again in 10 years and, and bring Stetson Jeff out for another six. Or maybe we won't. I don't know. It, yeah. uh, how, how, was that, how was that series progressed between the pair of you then? obviously with the three that are out things. So I know it said, well, there's definitely going to see three out. Well, yeah, the series progressed as we uh, uncovered just a little bit of a hint of an, a sort of an international drug ring or, uh, you know, the bad guy network of some kind in book one, and then developed it a little bit more in book two and then said, okay, we need to figure out who this nefarious kind of mystical he keeps running into them and they think he's tracking them down but it's all you know he's just stumbling over himself like inspector clouseau and keeps running into their 
various operations and warehouses and whatnot. And so we said, well, we got to figure out who this it's ASP um, ASP. And, and we're using a lot of tropes from the eighties movies. So if you think of like GI Joe and the, and the Cobras or, you know, those kind of things. And I, was trying, I was wondering that. I was wondering that. I must have. Yeah. So he was trying to figure out who they are and what they're up to. And um, I don't want to give too much away, but we decided, okay, this is, this is their, this is their kind of final plot. And I'm, I'm getting close to finishing up the rough draft of book six, which will end that story arc. And then if we want to bring Stetson Jeff back, we're probably going to have to dis turn up a different uh, nefarious plot for him to uncover. But the first two are pretty light. Like he, it's, it's uh, you just think he's running into, he, of course, as a Texan, he always calls them banditos. Um, it's just the banditos and you, you're not really, you don't really realize in book one and book two, what a big organization it is or what their, what their objectives are. You just, you just know that he's, kind of getting in their way um, as they as they try to run drugs or or weapons or whatever um, yeah and then so we we've got an ending plan now and I'm, I'm working hard to finish up uh, the rough draft of book six and then I'll be going back in and and editing book five and six together so that it you know comes to a point Brilliant. A good little bit, definitely, that series. Now, just to show people, obviously, how varied you are as a writer, I have been hinting it all along. The thing, another thing I spotted, you're going to send us, send us one of the MP3s over to attack on as a bonus for the audio exclusive of this podcast is your audio book, Vortex Street, which obviously yeah. knows your travel poems and, and your flash fiction is on. I know you've got another flash travel book on the way but we'll touch, touch on that in a few minutes but obviously then and, and tell us about then vortex street then your travel poems and flash fiction and also about your involvement of your son with this yeah i i have a copy of the paperback right here so it's a little poetry chapbook so as you can see it's it's only a quarter of an inch thick or so um, and so when I started reading it out for the audiobook, I thought it'd be nice to fill it out a little bit. And my um, now 17 year old son has a hobby of just making EDM um, chill music. And I, I said, hey, I'll pay you something for, you know, the right to use half a dozen of your songs or clips in between the poems on the audiobook. So it makes a real chill listen because uh, you listen to a poem or a piece of flash fiction, and then you get 15 seconds to a minute and a half of EDM that's pretty pretty chill usually um, to listen to before you jump into the next poem, which I, I feel like it makes a nice break when you're listening to it. Obviously, when you have an ebook or a, a paperback copy of Vortex Street, you can read one and put it by your bed and read the next one the next day. But you listen it's nice to have that little musical interlude so um i felt i, I felt strongly enough i felt uh, highly enough of my son's work to um give him a little bit of money and and put his tracks in my audiobook uh, and i think it's pretty fun sounds good to me look forward to hearing that one definitely with you so now obviously because we've got a few things to grab cut on today I'll touch on today still so i want to move straight on now to yeah, about your you. writing coach work now, I know, obviously, you do some writing coach work as well. 
So this is a, it shows you how busy you are. Now, tell us about that and then next time. What, what led you down this path as well then? Well, I started coaching, um, coaching in itself, whatever, whatever adjective you put in front of it, whether it's, um, you know, leadership or executive coaching or business coaching or writing coaching, it's all really the same process. Uh, it's just a different goal. Whatever the client's goal is, if it's to become a better writer, then I would coach them on that. And it's the same, pretty much the same thing that I do for somebody who wants to build their business. So uh, coaching is a, is a process where um, someone else brings the agenda and I ask them questions. I don't try to catch them out quite the way you say it, but I do, I do try to, to I'm, ask I'm, te I'm teasing you. I know you are. I know you are, but <laughs> we, use, we use questions in a similar way to help su surprise people a little bit, to help, um, help them get a different perspective or what I would call reframing their, their perspective on the world. So for example, if you're trying to write fiction and you're just stuck, um, you might, you might switch from first person to third person, or I might even challenge somebody to write in second person for a chapter and tell them it's okay. You can scrap it. Just see, see what happens if you write that chapter in second person and how that, so that's a concept of reframing and helping people find different approaches to get around their obstacles and, and meet their goals. And so that's what I do in all the different coaching that I do. And when I, when I work with writers, um, you know, their goal may be to, uh, I, I never guarantee anything, right? Like if their goal is to get an agent, get published by Random House, I'm not going to guarantee that, but I can help them be accountable to make this, take, take the steps that are necessary to uh, do their best to, to get an agent. Obviously, anytime someone else has to make a decision to accept them, that's something I can't control and it's something they can't control. So you don't guarantee uh, um, results when another person has to make a decision that impacts the the, the success or failure of the of the mission, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's that's what I do. Yeah, that's good. Good now. Wrap, start wrapping up now because obviously I'm conscious of the time of today for us because I want to give you as much time as we can to let you people hear a bit of your work. So and two things to conclude with, and it's great because your website brilliant on this. It basically says coming soon, so we can touch on the things you've got planned coming up now, and if there's anything else you want to reveal as well. But sure. before we do that, very briefly, I know you do ghostwriting as well, don't you? So, so yeah, do you want to tell us very briefly about that before we go into what's what's up next? Sure, that was a something that happened as I was working with another coach from Oregon in the United States. Uh, he asked me to co-write a book with him about marketing. Um, and so he had like a, a four principles for marketing and we decided to write it as a novella instead of like a, a typical traditional business book. That's like, blah, 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 blah. So we made it. <laughs> so I said, okay, I'll bring my creative edge to this. And we're going to bring a character who's trying to build their business. And they use the four principles in here, but we're going to make it not boring. Uh, and that one has not been released yet, but as we worked on it, I met someone from, um, a non-traditional publishing agency that helps people. They do editing, they do cover design, that kind of stuff like uh, author services, I, I would say. It's, it's called a publishing company, but it's really author services. And she said, hey, I, I, this stuff that you're doing with this marketing coach is brilliant. Can you, can you ghostwrite? And I said, can you pay me? 
Oh, I need you. I need you to get talks to my wife. The manager does that. She does. She's done golf yeah. writing before, and she got identical same philosophy you've got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's if my if my name's not going to be on the book and it's not going to build my catalog, then I need to be paid for it. So yeah, have to um, be straight away. Yeah. I I had a client this morning tell me that she feels good about what I did, and so that was project number three. So I only started doing this last December. Uh, it's only been about six months and um, um, I finished three projects uh, and my wife is editing them now. So I got my wife on, on staff with the, <laughs> with the publishing agency. And so oh, I've got three, three done and I've got one still in the can and uh, we may have another one coming on this week. I don't know. Um, so she's, the, the company's keeping me busy and, and it's been, it's been good work for me. Yeah. It certainly sounds like doing, you do, do what you're doing. Like it's, it's, you seem to be like, you probably have to do a lot of serious diary management. Don't you I suspect yourself? You've got to be constantly getting certain work done for certain time zones all the time, haven't you? And. Oh yeah. I mean, obviously uh, the way, the way the pay structure is set up, I get 50% up front and 50% when I'm done. So if I get oh, that's paid, not, that's good. That's good. <laughs> I want to get paid all that money in, in two months, then I got to get it done in two months, you know, Yeah, of um, course. So, so I can move on to the next one. So this, the speed of the project is primarily based on how fast I want to make the money, which is uh, the answer is fast. No, fair play, fair play, yeah, fair play, mate. Straight away with that. Fair yeah. play, but keeping it professional and efficient. Yeah, I get you. Now, I want to conclude with obviously what sure. we've got coming up next. Now, we've already touched on Stetson Jeff. I know we know about that already. Now, yeah. and you've told me off mic before about Zeppelin Zeke. I think I've mentioned before being the podcast of it as well. Now, I've got to ask you with this because if you look at your website, I think it's a brilliant where. I'm also now taking time to continue to edit this massive series. So I want to know how big is this massive series going to be? Well, it's it's about two hundred and fifty thousand words right now, and yeah, I'm not, it's massive. I'm put, yeah, it's pretty big, and um, some of it might just be stuck in a backstory, like Silmarillion type of document that doesn't see the light of day unless it's a like a super fan giveaway or something like that. Um, but I'm trying to finish up some of these other projects like the Stetson Jeff so that I can really get into the Zeppelin Zeke and dig into it. But it's about a rock band. It's, it's kind of the quintessential American story of a rocker who comes from a, a, a religious background, but it's a, it's a pretty strange religious background because I invented the religion myself. So it's like a cult. He comes from a cult type background, uh, but he's a, a child prodigy with the drums. And I don't think it's revealing too much to say that early on in his life at the age of three, he encounters John Bonham at a, at a Led Zeppelin concert. And John ends up giving him his sticks and saying to his mother, you need to get this kid a drum set because he's got something. Uh, so that's that's kind of the... The inciting incident of the story is when he's three and he gets lost at the Led Zeppelin hmm. concert and wanders around and finds himself backstage and plays, just picks up the sticks and plays something on the drum set that he heard while wandering around the stadium while the concert was going on. And, you know, John Bonham, the, the drummer, is like, 
how, how did you do that? So that's kind of how Zeppelin Zeke starts. And, uh, it, it's, it's an inch, I think it's a really interesting premise. Um, so I'm, I'm excited that, but I know it might take me another year and a half to even get the first third of it published. I'm yeah. taking my time on that. Mark Twain took 10 years to put out Huckleberry Finn and this is my Huckleberry Finn. So I don't care if it takes a couple more years. Fair play to you. We do not know a book of that length. It's best to let yeah. it come along at its own pace. I definitely believe you. Now, I don't know what stage you're up to with this one. I know the other book you've got on the go at the moment is Old Roads, New Friends, mm-hmm. which is about your experience of hiking, I can see as well. 200 yeah. miles on the Calamo de Santero. Is that right? Camino, Camino no. de Santiago. Yeah. Nowhere near. Nowhere near. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's, uh, it's Portugal to uh, Santiago in um, Galicia, northwest Spain. So there's a lot of different routes that people have been walking since um, as early as the 800s on this um, ancient Catholic pilgrimage where they thought that the bones of St. James were buried. And then uh, now today, there's several different routes where you can stay at hostels. Uh, every evening you walk about 15 miles 13 to 15 miles a day and you stay at a hostel and um, there's there's hikers from all over Europe doing this all the time I think in uh, before COVID I think in 2019 there were some 367,000 people who completed the the journey in that year so it's like more a little over a thousand people a day we're uh, making this hike. And so, yeah, the old roads, new friends, that was kind of my break between some stuff I was doing in the previous decade to taking, taking a little bit of a sabbatical and giving myself a break last November um, and hiking a couple hundred miles um, and getting a lot of quiet time, a lot of reflection time. And actually it was right after that, that I came back from that and I decided um, I was going to decrease some other activities in my business and increase my, my work as a writer and immediately started getting ghostwriting. So it all worked out really well that, that I'd kind of made that decision at the end of this long hike. And uh, I thought, well, I'm not sure how that's going to pay the bills, but I'm going to go for it. And then I started getting calls for ghostwriting. So that's job done. Isn't it it comes, comes naturally sometimes, those sort of things. I always believe that everything right. always comes in a natural progression. I think it has done for yourself there uh, brilliantly. Now, we'll wrap up this part now, Adam, because obviously I want to yeah. get into his reading for us. But to conclude with, where are people best going, first of all, if they want to find out more about you? I think my website, adamgfleming.com, and that's Fleming with one M, F-L-E-M-I-N-G. Adamgfleming.com is probably the best place. And then, of course, if you search my name, Adam G. Fleming on Amazon, if you're a, if you're a Kindle user, um, you can find me there as well. And so those are probably the main things. And then on social media, I'm probably as, uh, I have a brand new um, Facebook reader group. So you can look that up too, um, or just find find my uh, author page, Adam G. Fleming um, on Facebook. And then, yeah, just look me up and send me a message and say, hey, I want to find that author page because I can't even remember what the name of is, <laughs> the author, the, the writer the reader group. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but um, yeah, so there's a reader group. And then on Instagram, I'm Adam underscore G underscore Fleming. So you can find me on Instagram too and see travel pictures. Brilliant. All right, we'll wrap up this part now, mate. 
I'm going to give you a chance to do a bit of reading for it's been, been a pleasure today. I've really enjoyed this. So hang around, everybody. I'm looking forward to Adam coming up next. See you on a minute. Spoken, mate. Hi, guys. Yes, still here with the wonderful Adam Fleming. Over to Adam now. He's going to read out a few bits and pieces for us. Go for it, mate. I'm going to read a little bit from Satchelpong and the Great Migration. Um, this is a little bit in from the beginning. Pong sat in his corner office at the top of the fourth floor of the Tehran Municipal Complex, the highest vantage point in Tehran City. He admired the view to the east, towards the bay, at the wharfs, and in the commercial center, the activities of prosperous enterprises were in motion. Blue-collar men were hauling barrels, and in the park along the waterfront, businessmen, entrepreneurs, and foreign ship captains could be seen strolling along or betting and cheating each other at a lawn ball game called petanque and drinking their tea. Satchel Pong loved to watch as they cut deals on real estate or iron ore, berated their assistants, or winked at the serving ladies who brought tea to the outdoor cafes. Pong's life was so full of paperwork, he could hardly imagine spending the day playing with silly balls and drinking together and going home to a wife saying, "Ah, oh, we made lots of money today, dear. But then Pong was a bachelor and he had no imagination for how the wife might respond to that either. When he looked south across the great town of some 50,000 inhabitants, which he knew by the standards of foreigners in faraway lands to be no more than a village, he saw verlamsey trees giving shade to neat rows of houses, backyard truck gardens, and shops. Beyond them, he surveyed the mighty thatch of brewbotch trees ringing the town. Grateful will watch we for the brewbotch tree, he muttered, and made the sign of the brewbotch tree on his forehead with his thumb. Beyond the brewbotches, the ground blistered and boiled like the skin of some diseased sea monster. Fires broke out daily, burning the island itself, running themselves up against the iron-black, steel-tough hides of the Brubach hedge, which created a wonderful barrier to protect Tehran City and any other town or rural compound anywhere in the Nine Islands. The Verlamsey trees planted inside the city were symbiotic with the Brubach. Their shallow network of roots stole water from the much deeper roots of the Brubach, which made the Brubach work harder, thereby becoming the tough, fireproof plant that it was. And with that parasitically derived water flowing through them, the Verlamsey root system cooled the ground inside any compound like cold water pipes laid in flooring. They could be tapped for fresh water as well, for drinking, bathing, and irrigating other crops. It was true, the fires beyond the hedge were hotter these days. Yeah, good, good time finish there, definitely that one, Adam, because I think it's, People are wondering, that's a really good time to tease it out, definitely, for people. Uh, so, tremendous, mate. Okay, you're going to do a bit more, something a bit different next, for us, aren't you, to conclude with? How about a poem? Oh, yes, please, do a poem, do a poem. Yeah, I would love to read one of the one, one of the flash fiction pieces, but it's a little bit, uh, they're a little bit long. No, let's read this one, because it's a little macabre. It's called Rob the Wooden Frog. It's got a bit of a, Pinocchio feel to it. Rob was a wooden frog from a tourist market with a long peg in his mouth, which he could pull out and rub across his spine so that his hollow mahogany mouth would croak. A little boy owned him and played with him now and then. Hump, 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 he said. One day he fell out of his little boy's pocket and onto the footpath by the river. 
Soon a female frog hopped up to him and said, howdy, and asked would he like to have a drink and maybe some flies on Friday night. She said her name was Sandy. Rob wanted to be a real frog. A tear round his, ran down his cheek in his mind. It could not run down his actual cheek because, as we have noted, he was made of wood. But alas, how he would like to hop about with this female hollering hump hump together and perhaps doing other things. She began dragging him toward the water. It was a good thing, Rob thought, that wood could float or he'd be sinking. Instead, he bobbed down the river, his would-be girlfriend swimming along behind. Rob saw a waterfall ahead. Oh no, he thought. If we go over the waterfall, we'd be dashed on the rock against the rocks. He called to Sandy sort of telepathically. Look out! But she could not hear him because he was not a real frog, and he needed the little boy to stroke the stick across his back to make him say, Hump! But Sandy was alert. She was a real frog with strong swimming abilities, as you may have guessed, so she had no trouble staying away from the waterfall. She saw Rob drifting and cried out, Watch it, baby, you're too close. As he tumbled through the sky, Rob looked up and saw a wishing star. Gee, Mr. Wishing Star, he wished, I wish I was a real frog. Then I wouldn't splinter on the rocks below. To his astonishment, the star replied, Silly frog, only little children wish upon stars. Well, I did it anyway, Rob said. Then you must be a little child, said the star. With that, Rob turned into a real little boy. But I just wanted to be a real frog and mate with that hot babe Sandy, he thought. And then Rob, the real little boy, landed on the rocks at the bottom of the waterfall, broke his neck, and died. Later that weekend, Sandy mated with a different bullfrog whose name was Kerry Kingfisher. He was quite the specimen, as you might say, especially if you were dissecting him. But that was not his fate. Together, Sandy and Carrie improved the gene pool. The frog people once again became a tiny bit stronger. One day soon, Carrie Kingfisher knew they would rule the world. Tremendous. I'm so tremendous. Look, great piece of different direction. You do a piece up. Brilliant. Are you going to wrap things up? We've got a bit of time spare here for a bit of your cowboy piece as well, have you? Shall I read some stats and Jeff? Yes, please. Conclude. I mean, we have talked about it, so it does, it does make sense. It gives a bit of a conclusion with that, definitely. I'm going to jump right in on uh, on chapter one. And uh, this is the paperback, Stetson Jeff Adventures, uh, volume one. So this one ha has all three of the first three books in it. Um, so I got to I gotta take a second to get my Texas accent on. <laughs> <clears throat> I woke up and looked in the mirror. Lines on my face from a new corduroy Arkansas Razorbacks pillow. Spiked the hair on the top of my head with gel and let it dry while I combed out the tangles hanging to my shoulders with my brand new Arkansas Razorbacks comb. Barbed wire in front, horse's ass in the back, my daddy calls it. He tried to make me cut it once, but I reminded him that great-grandpappy had long hair and he rode with Wyatt Earp. Then I grabbed my Stetson, a regular Stetson, Oh, I got a few that are bright red with a big Razorbacks logo in the center, but I'd rather shake hands with a rattlesnake than wear one of those in public. Look, can I just say right up front that I hate the Arkansas Razorbacks? I did not choose to be born in Texarkana. I would throw out all the Arkansas Razorbacks stuff cluttering up my trailer if it wasn't all given to me on my birthday and holidays by members of the family. But it was, so I have to keep it. I tell my family members... F the Razorbacks, and they all laugh and say, spoken like a true Arkansian, or is it Arkansite? Arkanser? 
Then they all fall to arguing about what they should call me. Oh, it's a big joke here that I was born in Arkansas. It's become a family tradition every Christmas to see who can give me the weirdest Razorbacks memorabilia. And yesterday was no different. Everyone else got something they wanted. I got 10 Razorbacks placemats to go with my Razorbacks card table and a shiny new Razorbacks razor, which daddy was especially proud of finding. And remember, this was 1988. Long before there was eBay or Amazon, but still they managed to find stuff like a metal sign that says reverse reserve parking, Razorback fans only, or a desk statue of a pig made from rosin that's supposed to look like bronze. I don't even have a desk and I don't need a parking spot. I swear they spent all summer looking at yard sales and auctions for stuff to get me. And then they laughed when I told them I don't need more Razorback stuff. And then they just kept on debating what you call someone from Arkansas. Arkansonian? No, that's not what you call me. My name is Stetson Jeff Stetson. You know, just like Bond James Bond. 007. Except with a bigger hat and a bigger... <laughs> you know, everything's bigger in Texas. Heck, even in Arkansas, things are bigger than little old Great Britain. Well, let's not go there. <clears throat> Shall I keep going? <laughs> did I no, just insult your whole that, that's, per, that's perfect today, that, mate. Been a real pleasure today, that one. It definitely has that. I, I respect you for that straight away. If you're doing a text accent like that, it's you a, <laughs> far as I can see. And honestly, I'm, I'm a Brit. It was a good, it was a good effort that one straight away. So, <laughs> well, I, my my grandparents lived in Texas when I was little, and so even though I'm a Midwestern boy with a totally different accent, we traveled down there often enough that I was able to kind of get a, a pretty good feel for what a te- what my Texas accent is. So, No, tremendous. Now, I want to thank you today, Adam, because we're going to have a chat off mic now when it's sort of a more bits and pieces out. But I've really enjoyed this today. I've got to be honest with you, it's always great when you get a chance to chat to people like yourself, when you're researching them. And it's sort of people that bear in mind podcasting this, when you find out when you're researching them how much creative stuff they've got involved like I obviously I knew you like you how you had your fingers in a few pies when we agreed this a bit about the session, but it's been a pleasure today just see, seeing how varied your work is and all the best of the future with me. It's been a pleasure today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Andy. Appreciate it. Anyway, guys and girls, that's it for today. Anyway, for spoken label. So as Don Callis at Impact Wrestling says, stay safe and stay over, and we will see you all next. Spoken like